We are coming uh, and actually are at the end of our series on the book of Hebrews. Uh, We didn't read it, but uh, I always found it a little bit funny in verse uh, 22. It says, I have written to you briefly. Uh, Have you guys felt this has been a brief uh, writing so far? Just a little light read for us to get into. But the, the point of Hebrews has been very clear throughout that Jesus is greater All the way back in chapter 1, we talked about how Jesus is a greater message. God has spoken in many times and in many ways, and that has been wonderful. But now he speaks most clearly through his son. Jesus is greater than angels, these incredible beings that God has worked through throughout history. And yet Jesus is greater than them in every single way. He, he offers us a great salvation. He becomes like us in every way except for sin so that he can pay the cost of our sins. Jesus is greater than Moses, which means that he can also offer us a, greatest, a greater rest. While Moses was bringing people to the promised land, Jesus is bringing us to someplace that is even better. He could do this because he is a greater high priest. He can fully offer the sacrifices for our sins. And because of that, we are issued a great warning. Do not try to find salvation apart from him because there is no other salvation apart from him. And yet it's not all doom and gloom at that point. We hear of the benefits of him as well, that uh, we have him who uh, offers us this great promise, this hope that comes through the work and person of Jesus. And because of that, he is part of a greater priesthood, bringing in a greater covenant as well, all based off the greater sacrifice of his death for our sins. This produces in us this great confidence that we can have to live for Him. But this life of living for Him, this race that we're called to run, it's a difficult one. And so we are given encouragement along the way, this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. The, The picture of the faithfulness of Jesus helps produce in us a great endurance. And as we see the place that we are running towards, the end goal that we have, in fact, now, this great kingdom that is to come, that is here, it helps us to run that race. And every step of this book, we have seen that Jesus is greater than any other place that we might turn. And when we see the person and work of him, well, what other response is there than what we read later on? When we see that we were far off so that God brought us near to him, when we see that we were broken and so God made us whole anew, when we see that we had this punishment for our sins that we couldn't pay so God paid for it himself, himself. When we see that living for him is hard, and so God gives us the means to do that, what other response is there but Hebrews 12, 28 that we saw last week? It says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When we see all that God has done for us, what other response is there but worship with reverence and awe? And now we get to this last chapter, Hebrews 13, and it shows us how do we do that? How do we worship with reverence and awe? It's not the first time that worship has shown up in this letter. 
Uh, we were talking before about what worship looked like in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, where priests would go and offer sacrifices. That was worship at the time. Now, we've seen quite clearly in what Hebrews 13 talks about, we don't need those sacrifices anymore. Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice. So, so what does worship look like now? If we're not going to a temple, what does worship look like for us now? Well, it's our very lives. It's everything we have. It's everything we are. We use that to worship God. And this is connected to what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. I think of Romans 12, where we are called to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And that is our act of worship. So the way that we are living is, in fact, a sacrifice, is, in fact, worship. And then after Romans 12, we get all of these commands that follow that. And I think we really misunderstand the purpose of commands. We talk a lot about how they're in response to God. It's not earning his affection. But do we often think of these commands as giving us the way to worship God? Do we think that these these things that we're told to do are, are means, the very way that we worship this God? Do we think of them more as restrictions or a to-do list that we just need to try really, really hard to make sure that we're doing all of it? But that's not the purpose of them. When we see all that God has done for him, we live in the way that he calls us to, which is our worship as living sacrifices, denying ourselves what we would seek otherwise, following the good way that God has for us instead. That is worship with reverence, with awe. In the same way, Hebrews 13 has this entire list of commands, of sacrifices that we make, of ways that we do this, ways that we worship. And I think we can summarize this chapter of how we worship with reverence and awe in three ways. We worship with our conduct, we worship with our contentment, and we worship with our praise. So conduct, contentment, and praise. Now, you might be sitting there, he's like, well, he had two words that start with a C. Couldn't he have find, found a third one? We could have the three C's of worship. Well, what a tremendous opportunity we have to practice contentment together. <laughs> we worship with our conduct, our contentment, and our praise. Let's start with that first one. We worship with our conduct. Uh, I'm going to read Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 for us. It says this. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And remember those who are in prison, as though in, the prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. So we worship God with our conduct, how we treat other people. And underneath this, there, there's three different ways that we can do this as well, that we can worship through how we treat others. The first is how we treat the brothers, those who are in our Christian gatherings together. It said, let brotherly love continue. I really like the way that the, the New International Version, the NIV trend, English translation of the Bible puts it. Uh, they say, uh, continue loving each other like brothers and sisters. I think that captures the idea really well that we are to continue loving those of us around uh, us in a church gathering as a, as a church community. We continue loving each other like brothers and sisters. 
And this makes so much sense because uh, we have all been brought together by the same means. That we did nothing to earn God's affection or favor. We did nothing to force his hand to love us or care for us. But we have been brought here because of the work and person of Jesus. As we've looked throughout Hebrews, we saw that Jesus is called the Son of God. This this phrase of intimacy and, and care And as Jesus comes to this world to live the life that we couldn't possibly live on our own, we are called sons and daughters of God as well. As we are made sons and daughters of God, that makes us brothers and sisters. We see Jesus is called the firstborn, this this word of authority and inheritance. How Jesus, by living the faithful life, receives all of God's blessings, all of God's promises, and he gives us that status as well that we receive the promises of God, we receive the blessings of God. So as people brought together, not by anything that we did, as people called sons and daughters of God, that brings us together to care and love for each other as well. As people who were undeserving and yet called lovely, we treat each other with care and affection because we are all in the same spots. When we sit in this room together, we're essentially people pointing fingers at each other saying, hey man, me too, I don't deserve to be here either. And that causes us, that drives us, us to love one another as brothers, as sisters brought into God's family, not by anything we did, but solely based off of his work. This goes back to to what Jesus has taught before too. When when he was uh, here in his earthly ministry, he says, they, the world will know that you are my disciples, my followers by how you love one another. The love that occurs amongst Christians who are brought together is so vital. I was reading someone this past week who said, how can we expect to love anyone outside of a church family if we can't even love our church family together? We are people brought to this status, brought to this position as sons and daughters, as firstborn because of Jesus, and that drives us to love and care for and seek the good of all those who we would call brothers and sisters in Christ. That is how we worship. We worship by loving our brothers and sisters. And I talked about how how can we love anyone outside of here if we aren't loving here. Well, that's the next piece of how we are called to show hospitality to the stranger. We worship by how we treat those who are outside of the gathering. So we love those who are around us, who are in this circle, but we also care for those who are outside of it. It says, show hospitality to the stranger. Now, this could be Christians who are coming from far-off areas, uh, and that would make them strangers to the community, or it could be people who aren't Christians at all. I'm not entirely sure. There's, there's people who go either way on it, but I'm not entirely sure that it matters because the point remains the same. How do we meet the needs of those, especially when we don't know them? when we don't know their backstory, when we know nothing about them? How do we show hospitality and care for this person? How do we meet the needs of those who are strangers to us? And this was uh, vitally important at at the time that the book of Hebrews was written. It's written to a a community of people uh, at a time where, where travel was not something that was done very often. 
Travel wasn't something that was done often for recreation. You, you always needed to have a purpose for it. You're either going on some sort of uh, religious pilgrimage or uh, you were displaced from your home or uh, you're, you're doing something for work. There was always a purpose for travel, which meant that it didn't occur all that often. And because of that, there wasn't really a lot of infrastructure set up for travel, for accommodating strangers, for those who were outside of the community. If you, if you went to a place, you might have one in maybe two, maybe. And even then, if you went to a place like this, it, it was often a t- place of theft or worse to those who were strangers because it easily identified them as being outsiders. It put a, a target on them. And, and so it's few options, and the options aren't really all that good. It's like if you are traveling and, and you go to this motel, it's right up alongside a freeway, and you're looking at it, and you could swore that, that there was glass in these window panes at some point, but now it's just plywood boards, and, and you're concerned, is this place even open anymore? And you see, oh, there's people around it, and then you quickly identify that they're police officers who are wrapping up an investigation into a fresh crime scene. And so, like, you need to check, is this, is this a for real place? And you look at the name, and it's called the Bates Motel. And so you uh, Google that, and uh, worst of all, it only has two stars on Yelp. Uh, are you going to stay in that place? Well, that's the reputation of inns or lodging at the time. And not only that, but strangers themselves, they, you don't know what their backstory is. You don't know if they are coming here to take advantage of that community. You don't know if they might commit some crime as well. And so for someone to offer hospitality to a stranger meant the world. For someone to offer private lodging often meant that person's safety. For someone to care for the needs of this stranger often meant their survival on this trip. And so the audience of Hebrews is told to show hospitality to the stranger as a way of worship. How we treat those who aren't just part of our circle, how we, uh, our conduct is towards those who are, uh, we don't know anything about them, that is an act of worship as well. So we're to show hospitality to the stranger. And this might come into some people's minds is that's great. I love having people over. So that's fantastic. That might not be hospitality though. Because oftentimes this is putting on some event and, and while it's good and it's great to have people over, the event more often is to create joy in our own selves. Or the, our list of people that we invite, it's, it's people that we want to get to know more. It's people that we want to bring in to a social circle or get access to their social circle. And that's not what's going on here. Instead, it's those who we don't know, those who we might not get any benefit from, whether that's joy or status or whatever it might be, how do we care for those people as an act of worship? And again, this is so vital because it's connected to what's been done for us. This is a response to what's been done for us. So we care for those who are strangers. We care for those who are outsiders as a reminder that we were in the same spot, that we were strangers of God who has now brought us near and called us sons and daughters. So how do we show hospitality to those who we don't even know? Well, it's asking these questions. 
How can I help someone uh, be reminded that they are valuable? How can I help someone who doesn't feel like they have anyone who listens to them? How can I help someone who feels that they are going through this all alone? How can I help someone who doesn't feel that they have anywhere to turn? How can I show hospitality to a stranger even if I get nothing back? This is the great realization that our homes, our time, our possessions, our energy, they are all ministry tools that's been given to us. Everything we have has been given to us from God, and God has provided us the means to do the worship that we are called to do in the same way that we were far off from God. We worship with our conduct as we care and show hospitality for those who are strangers. And the final way that we worship with our conduct is by caring for those who are mistreated. Uh, our passage specifically mentions uh, those who are imprisoned, uh, and it's and it talked about them as they are part of the body. So these are Christians who are in prison, and there was there was a ton of reasons why Christians would have been thrown in jail at the time. Uh, the most obvious one is crime that that will do it. Uh, but for ones that might be brought up here specifically for Christians as to why we're supposed to care for them is uh, Christians were thrown in jail or punished quite often. This could be refusing to worship uh, the, the Roman gods at the time or, or not taking part of a religious practice. This was means to be thrown in jail. And so for us, how can we be caring for those who are facing mistreatment for following Jesus? This might happen here in this country. This might happen abroad. How can we care for those who are being mistreated because of Jesus? And again, this is all coming under the, the umbrella of how are we to worship with reverence and awe? And the, the first way that we're given is how we treat each other because we have been so loved and cared for by our God who has done everything to pay the cost of our sin, who has done everything to make us sons and daughters. We act and we live out of that status. We care for those who we might have no other reason to care for that this might not be a group of people that we would pick for ourselves, and yet we have been brought close to God together, made uh, in this status that is so beautiful and yet so undeserving together, so we care within the church. We care outside of that to those who are strangers, and we care to those who would be here otherwise. So those that we know, those that we don't, those who are mistreated, those who are going through things well, we worship our God with reverence and awe, with our conduct, with how we treat one another. That is an act of worship. We also worship a God with our contentment. Uh, let me read for us uh, chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we are told that we can worship out of our contentment with recognizing that God has given us everything that we have and that we are content, we are happy and satisfied with what God has given us. And the two ways that our passage talks about being content is with sex and with money. 
Is it cool if I skip over this section? So clearly this was a struggle for the audience of the Hebrews, but in our society, uh, sex and money are not struggles for us at all. So it just doesn't relate. Cool if I just skip over this? No, no, these two areas have been a struggle for contentment in every situation to every person. So how can we worship out of our contentment when it comes to both sex and money? We'll start with that first one, and we'll try to keep it appropriate for all audiences. Uh, so how do we show contentment with sex? Well, we have two terms that are given here that, that show uh, how we are to operate with this. So it talks about the sexually immoral. This is anyone who has uh, relations outside of marriage vows. That's how we see that phrase used time and time again. And then the adulteress, those who break their marriage vows. So just by these two words, we get a pretty comprehensive list of people. It, it, it all points to this one thing, that in how we worship in contentment when it comes to sex is how God has set the standard of it. Man and wife covenanted together in marriage. Now, Oftentimes, when we're going through passages like this, we give a lot of the law at the beginning, and then we get to a little bit of grace at the end. But I, I want to get to grace at the beginning. Uh, for those who might fall uh, outside of this verse, for those who might have had, uh, might fall under that description of sexually immoral, for those who might fall under that description of adulteress, they are not too far gone. I mean, think of what we've been seeing throughout Hebrews. Hebrews has constantly said, here is God's standard. Do not fall away from that. And we have beautiful verses like, like while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, which implies that promise still stands. We can still receive God's grace and provision. We can still receive forgiveness for all sins. Yes, our passage says God will judge these sins. He will do it in a future sense. There is time now for forgiveness. There is time now for repentance. There is time now to worship God in our contentment going forward. Because that's what uh, the, the passage is saying, that this is a response. This is a worship because we have been so struck by what Jesus has done for us. So because we are doing that, we are moving forward worshiping in this way. There is grace, there is repentance, there is acceptance for those who have fallen short before. What we are called to do is continue following after the standard God sets for us going forward. And what he says is that uh, we are to keep the standard that God sets for sex, man and wife covenanted together in marriage. Uh, I want to talk about one other piece. Uh, why does this matter? So often Christians are really good at pointing to what God's standard is, but, but why does God care who we sleep with? Or it's, uh, we are really good at pointing out where people fall short of this, uh, you know, judging these sins as we come across them, but the passage does talk about whose job that is to judge it, and it says God, so we're uh, taking a role for God to ourselves, which is a sin as well, but we don't have time for that one. But I want to spend time on why does God care about this? Why does it matter? Why do we always see sexual ethics pop up throughout Scripture? Why is it such a big deal to God? Why does it show up so often in the Bible? Now, 
as I said, we don't always do a good job at it, so I'm going to do a pretty poor job of spending time on this just because there's a lot in this passage. But let me rush through a couple observations that I see on this topic uh, and, and uh, hopefully give us more thoughts and understanding as this. So why does God care about this? Why does God say to worship out of contentment with this? Well, first and foremost, God created humans as sexual beings, and as creator, he gets to define what that purpose is. As God made us, he gets to define what our purpose and valuing is. This is also linked very clearly to one of God's first commands that he gives back in Genesis. He says that within this marital relationship, that humans are to fill the world and have authority. Now, there's a lot of nuance here and a lot of questions that could come. What about those who are unable to take part of filling the world? What about those who are not married? Is this disobeying this command? And that's not the case at all. And and more than happy to talk about those nuance pieces. But it is linked. It is showing that the purpose of uh, sex as God gives it is linked to that first and initial command. But I think the biggest reason for this is marriage And the love that occurs within it is given to us as a picture of God's love for us. And so when we misuse the picture, when we go outside of marriage that has been given to us, we are demonstrating that we misunderstand and misvalue the love that God shows to us. And so why God cares about it is it's because it's the best picture that he can give us as to the tremendous love that he shows to us. So when we go outside of that, when we disobey the standard that that God sets to us, we are showing that we disregard that love as well. And it all comes back to that contentment piece, how we worship God out of our contentment. And it is this question of, am I satisfied with what's been given to me? Am I satisfied with the parameters that God gives to me in this life that he has provided, or do I feel that as a standard that I get to set for myself? And as we see all the good that God has done for us, as we see his tremendous person and work, as we see time and time again in the book of Hebrews of all that this God has done for us, it is recognizing that we are content with the parameters that's been given to us. It is recognizing that we are content with how God has established these things that are so difficult to all people at all times, and we are worshiping out of that contentment when it comes to sex. And because of this, we as Christians want to have such a high view of marriage because it is that picture of God's love for us, because it is a means of worship for us. We want to have a high view of marriage. This doesn't mean that you have to be married, not at all. It doesn't mean that if a marriage has been broken, that you are beyond the grace of God. That's not it at all. But it is a standard that we all want to hold, even if we aren't married, if we are no longer married. It says we want to have marriage be held in the honor among all people because it is that picture of what God does, because it is a place of worship, because it is something that God sets aside and gives a standard to. Now, we don't want to just say those words. It's really easy to say the words. We have a high view of marriage. We actually want to put our money where our mouths are. And so this February, uh, the first weekend of February, we are asking, telling, pleading with people in Calvary to go to this marriage retreat that we are partnering with in the Springs. It's called Weekend to Remember. Uh, Emily and I are going to be there. Uh, Justin and Sarah are going to be there. Uh, Dakota 
and, and Nick, and we want that place to be packed out with Calvary families, not because we want it to be this super cool Calvary time, no, because we hold marriages in that high honor that we want to do whatever we can to support them. I'm so grateful that Calvary is caring for the staff to, to send us to this thing, and we want to have as many uh, couples as we can there as just a tool to care for marriages because we hold it in high regard. So February, the first weekend of February in the Springs, this conference is coming up. We'll, we'll have some more information about that. But we don't want to just say we have a high view of marriage. We want to put our money where our mouths are. And speaking of money, that's the other way that we can show contentment. We worship out of our contentment with uh, how we view sex and how we view money. And this was such a huge relief to me when I got to this passage. See, I work in a church, and my wife works at a small private school, and so we will never have money, and so this is an area that's, that isn't a problem for me. But actually look at what the passage is saying. The, one of the worst quoted uh, Bible verses of, of all time is, uh, money is the root of all evil. That verse is incorrect. The love of money is the root of all evil. In our passage here as well, it says nothing uh, is wrong with having money, but we are to keep ourselves free from the love of money. So having things is never an issue. But it is, what is our perspective when it comes to it? What am I willing to do to get money or some object or some possession? How am I treating people when money is on the line? How honest am I willing to be when it comes to money or possessions? Uh, how much am I willing to sacrifice ethically, morally, to get more of something Am I using my possessions, any money that I have, as a tool to do good for others, or is it just a means to grow in more and more selfishness? The love of money so breaks those areas that we are called to worship before. We worship out of our conduct with how we treat each other, the others outside of it, care for those who are mistreated. But if we have a love for money, if we are not operating in contentment there, well, we miss on the ability to worship in those areas before. So we worship out of our contentment with how we treat money and possessions and, and what we have. It isn't saying it's wrong to have those things, but what is our purpose? What is our mindset? Are we recognizing that God has given us everything and worshiping him out of that? Because here is the ultimate reason that we can worship out of our contentment. When we go beyond the grounds given to us for sex or for money, what we are saying is, I know what's better. And it is actually a doubt that God will care and provide and protect his people. I mean, that's how the passage ends. It is the reminder that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so, verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I, shall, I will not fear what can man do to me. But when we go beyond the boundaries set for us with sex, with money, we cannot honestly say that verse. We cannot say that we are trusting in God's provision. We cannot say that we trust in what God has done before. We are trying to accrue for ourselves. We're setting a standard for ourselves, and that is not worship. So instead, because we see all that God has done, because we know that he will keep his promises, we worship him out of our contentment. 
The final way that we worship God uh, with reverence and awe is with our praise. The one that probably comes most clearly to mind when we think about worship. Uh, Look at uh, verses 14 through 16. It says, For here on this earth we have no lasting city, uh, but we seek the city that is to come. This is connected to last week where we saw Mount Zion, the, the end goal, the finish line, the place that is to come that is ours now. We are seeking that. Through him then let us continue offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So again, this is, uh, it keeps going back to that language of sacrifice. Do you see how often it came up? So the sacrifice of the lips of praise. So what we do when we sing songs together, when we uh, pray out loud, when we have times that we get to look at God and, and give thanksgiving or, or uh, honor him, that is a sacrifice. The times that we do good, that is a sacrifice. This is linked so much to what would happen before, where the priest would go and give his sacrifices, his animal sacrifices. What we're doing now is we are worshiping, whether that's with words, whether that's with actions, or whatever it may be, when we are coming together, we are worshiping. It's why we place such a focal point on this time of let's get into the Word of God. We want to be reminded of of who God is, what He's done, what He's calling us to be, and we respond to that. We respond to the work that God has been doing throughout the week of teaching us with songs of praise, with songs, uh, 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 with our offerings, with our sacrifice, with our responding to God's goodness by saying that He is good. So we worship God, this, this response to all that He has done. We worship God with our conduct, with our contentment, and with our praise. And oh man, there, there's, there's so much else that's in this verse that I wish that we had time to do. There's the reminder to remember your leaders of old. Remem- remember those who first told you about Jesus and hold them in honor and regard them. And to not, uh, there's another reminder, to not go away from that gospel that's been taught to us, the teaching that we have received, to not go astray from that again. And the reason why we don't do that is, and we get this incredible verse, is Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have the reminder as well to hold our leaders in, in regard and honor, that they are caring for us and, and helping us to not go astray, helping us to live this life, helping us to worship in these ways. And there's a bit of a scary aspect for me as well, the reminder that I will have to give an account for how I do in this role, that I'm to to care and to do so with joy and not groaning. So I constantly need you all to help hold me accountable to this. But as we wrap up this series on the book of Hebrews, our takeaway is just three simple words. Jesus is greater. He is greater than anything else we might try to fill our lives with. He has done it all to save us. He has done it all to care for us. He has done it all to love and and show honor to us who were so undeserving of either of those. And so in every decision that we make, every action that we do, it is all shaped by this truth that Jesus is greater. And so we love each other, the stranger, 
So we show uh, we worship out of our commit, uh, contentment, so recognizing that God has created all. He sets a standard for how we are to live. We run this race. We endure. We do good. We love. We do all of this because we are so struck by this God who has treated us so well. We do all of this because we are filled by the Spirit enabling us to do so. And we do all of this in an effort to live exclusively for this Jesus who is great. Let me pray for us.